John 13, 21 to 30. One of you will betray me. 13, 21. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. There was reclining on Jesus' breast one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter, therefore, gestured to him and said to him, Tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. He, leaning back thus on Jesus' breast, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus, therefore, answered, That is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And after the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Jesus therefore said to him, What you do, do quickly. Now, no one of those reclining at table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were supposing, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, Buy the things we have need of for the feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. And so, after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you'll teach us from this word, teach us from this portion of your word, that we might be faithful until the end, truly following Christ as true followers of Christ, and never betraying him and betraying his people. In the name of Christ, amen. In this part of John 13, we continue at the feast. At this feast or at the dinner, at the supper, that Jesus eats during his last week of his life on the earth or during the last week before his crucifixion and and resurrection, we should say. During that time, he continues at the supper time to describe what's going to happen to him. He continues to describe what's going to happen to him so that his disciples are not discouraged. Remember, he's trying to prevent discouragement and abandonment. He's trying to show them that they must endure till the end. He's trying to tell them, listen, dangers will come. False brethren will come. Difficulties will come. Hardships will come. Troubles will come. But don't be discouraged. Continue pressing on in the faith because this is intended for God to use this in your life just as God used it in my life, in the life of Christ. He's saying God will do the same in your life. The slave, as he says in verse 16, Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, neither one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If these troubles, these kinds of troubles happened to Christ, they will also happen to us. Christ knew in advance, and that was his consolation. That was his comfort. That was his joy, like it says in Hebrews 12, 1 to 2. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He endured the shame and the cross. This is what he endured because he knew beyond the cross, beyond the pain, was the pleasure of eternal presence, of the eternal presence with God. 
That is what he saw before him. And that's the same with us. We will also experience this. In this passage, the main conflict or the main trouble is the fact that Judas Iscariot, one of their own friends, one of their own disciples, one who ministered with them also for three and a half years alongside of Christ, one who had the true teaching of Christ, one who had the gifts of Christ and the Holy Spirit and doubt upon him, one who had all of these abilities, one who kept a holy life in their presence. Secretly, we'll see, he did not do so, but openly in their presence, whatever they saw, whatever they knew of him, they thought that he was one among them. He was one of the twelve, and that all was fine, that all twelve genuinely, deeply loved Jesus Christ. That's what they thought. But it turns out it wasn't that way. And because of this close relationship that they had, it was necessary for Christ to explain to them in advance that he knew, so they shouldn't be troubled, when one of them defects, when one of them falls away, when one of them walks away, betrays Christ, and even murders himself, which is what Judas did. Don't be discouraged by that. Just understand this is all a part of the plan of God. It's all a part of the purpose of God in reference to the twelve, but also in reference to the Christian life. Generally in the Christian life, that's the way it will be. Everyone who claims Christ is not a follower of Christ. Everyone who seems to be loving Christ along with us is not necessarily someone who truly believes the same thing we believe. Eventually, and maybe not eventually, they will be exposed in in this life. But certainly by the time in the life to come, on the Day of Judgment, God will expose them. In this life, or in the life to come. In one way or another, they will be exposed. Let's see now, specifically how he describes it. In verse 21, when Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. He's troubled in spirit. Why? Because he's experiencing the feelings and the emotions of betrayal before it actually happens. And when he experiences those feelings, both before, during, and after this betrayal, he's not sinning because it's right and good to experience a troubled spirit, a troubled heart, when one is betrayed. It's not sinful, it's not wrong. If someone is betrayed by another, the one betrayed (coughs) ought to feel this way. He ought to feel this way, why? Because it's sin, it's wrong, it's evil, when a faithful man has an unfaithful man who pretended to be faithful turn against the faithful. It should cause trouble. Jesus has a troubled spirit for this reason. And this is not the first time his humanity has been highlighted by the Apostle John. Not the first time his humanity has been highlighted. You know that in chapter 4, at the well of Samaria, he is thirsty and he's also hungry. The disciples are also hungry. They go into the town to buy food. 
He was thirsty and he was hungry. Correct? In John chapter 11, when he is hearing and seeing the people who are weeping over the death of Lazarus, he also is deeply moved in spirit. John eleven thirty three, 33. Deeply moved in spirit. And in this way too, he has these genuine, true emotions, not sinful emotions, but true and genuine emotions. We must look at Christ whenever there are emotions and actions and words of Christ. We must look at them as sinless. Sinless. Without any evil. You know, it has become popular in past generation, maybe 20, 30 years ago, to say, what would Jesus do? And that was true and that was correct in that whatever Jesus did was right. It was without sin. In that sense, that fad, it was correct. What would Jesus do? We should always ask, what would Jesus do? Because whatever Jesus did, whatever he said, was perfect, sinless, unblameable, blameless, right? We should have that mentality. Now, in that movement, it was more the lovey-dovey kind of thing that Jesus would do. That's what they seized upon. And they wouldn't look at the judgmental, righteous, wrathful, holy Jesus. They wouldn't look at that aspect of Christ. And that's where they were wrong. But in our case, and in the biblical case, when we look at what Jesus did and said, we should think immediately, it's right, it's true. We should have faith in it, have confidence in it, and then to imitate him. Didn't he say that? Didn't he say that in 1315? For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. We should imitate him. Be imitators of Christ. And to the extent that the prophets and the apostles and the righteous men throughout history, in the Bible and throughout history, that they have followed Christ, we should do the same. And not consider it sin. Not everyone has thought that. In theology, they call it the active obedience of Christ. It was necessary for Christ to be actively obedient throughout his life. Every thought, every word, every deed, every single thing he ever did was perfect without sin. We cannot accuse him of sin. If we accuse him of only one sin, just one sin, then he becomes an unfit savior. He becomes a sinful savior, which is no savior. We can't have his righteousness reckoned to our account if actively throughout his whole life he did not obey God. But he did obey God. When we approach him in everything he says and does, that's the attitude with which we should approach Christ. He further testified. He testified, the apostle says in verse 21, which means when he testifies, he has to tell them exactly what is factual, correct? That's what a testimony, that's what a witness does. That's what someone in the courtroom does when he testifies. He has to say, he's under oath to say, only that which is true, only that which is factual, only that which he saw, or only that which he heard, 
Only that which he touched, he has to tell the exact truth. And Jesus is saying the same thing, and he's calling them to pay attention. When he testifies like this, he wants them to pay attention. Listen up. In other words, listen up. Pay attention. Give your attention here. To what? Truly, truly. So now he is emphasizing how right and true it is. He's emphasizing that they need to pay attention to this very fact. I say to you, the Lord Christ, I say to you that one of you will betray me. One of you among the twelve. Now, that is a clear statement, is it not? That's the way witnesses or testifiers in the courtroom are supposed to be, right? They're supposed to be clear so that there is no ambiguity no uh, unclarity in the courtroom. They're supposed to say it exactly as they saw it. And that's, that's what he's doing here. One of you will betray me. He's not talking about the creation of the world, correct? He's not talking about the second coming of Christ, correct? He's talking about betrayal. One of you, not somebody else, not, not one of the chief priests, not one of the Pharisees, not one of the Sadducees, not a Herodian, not Herod himself, not Pilate himself. I'm not talking about anybody else in the world. I'm talking about one of you, one of the twelve. You see how specific he is? To highlight the fact that I'm telling you something that is very solemn, something that, that is very serious, that one of you, this in fact will happen, one of you will betray me. And he says it in the future tense. Will betray me. Me. This takes us back also to verse 19, 13, 19. From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am He. I want you to know who I truly am, the true and living God, the God of the Old Testament, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob of Moses, of David. I am that God, and I tell you in advance so that when it does happen exactly as I told you, you will have confidence in who I am. That's what I want. So he tells them in advance that one of you will betray me. We notice here that even though that fact was said in the hearing of Judas... It did not move him. It did not shake him. It did not cause him to repent. Which will also be true of us. If we say a solemn word like this to somebody, they, they might just blink, keep a straight face, and then walk away. They will be unmoved. Their, uh, their spirit won't be troubled. Jesus' spirit was troubled, but Judas, his spirit was not troubled. Not troubled enough to do something to repent, people will be like that too. Unmoved. Well, we come to verse 22, and it says that the, that, that the disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. How in the world, Christ, could you be speaking about one of us? We are clueless, we don't know whatsoever. Who could it be among us? 
We never suspected anybody. We've been living with each other. We've been traveling with each other. We've been ministering with each other. We've been preaching the gospel with each other. We've been healing people together. We've been casting out demons together. We've been sharing good food and fellowship together. We've been sleeping together. How is it possible that one of us could be the one you're talking about? We have no idea. They are at a loss. They have no clue, not even a hint, who it could be. That's the way Judas lived before them. Judas Iscariot. Chapter 12, verse 6. Chapter 12, verse 6. Now he said this, Judas said this, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Judas Iscariot was a thief. He used to steal what was in their money box. And they didn't know why Judas was the way he was or what he was doing. They didn't know it was a complete secret. He had the money box and he used to steal some money from the money box to do whatever he wanted with that money. The disciples didn't know that because he did it secretly. Chapter 13, verses 27 to 29. Chapter 13, 27 to 29. It says, And after the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Jesus therefore said to him, What you do, do quickly. Now, no one of those reclining at table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. They didn't know why Jesus said it to Judas. What you do, do quickly. They didn't understand. They didn't know why he would say that. Verse 29. For some were supposing, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we have need of for the feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. They thought that was the problem, or that was the command. What you do, do quickly. Right? They're eating the supper, which is different than the feast of the Passover. So they thought Jesus told Judas, go buy whatever we need for the feast of the Passover and unleavened bread. Go do that and do it quickly because it's approaching. In a day or two, it's approaching. So go handle the matter. Or, since it was customary for them to give to the poor, that maybe... Jesus and Judas had some discussion, and Judas should go give something to the poor since he had the money. He was the treasurer of the disciples. They thought that. The thought never struck them, Judas is the betrayer because he lived a righteous life before their eyes, in their presence. He lived a righteous life. Now, the disciples were told a while ago that one of them would betray and that one of them was a devil. They were told a while ago, while they were all together, John 6. Turn to John chapter 6. We see from this that though Christ had told them They didn't give it due attention. This is what we learn. 
Though Christ had told them in John chapter 6 about Judas, not specifically identifying him, but that one of them was this way, they did not let those words sink into their hearts. They did not give it due attention. They just kind of said, oh, okay, well, oh, well, probably that's what happened. And they didn't give it attention. No, it's not going to happen to us. No, it couldn't be. So let's just move on to other matters. They didn't give it its due attention. John 6, John 6, verse 70, 670. Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? One of you is a devil? 71. Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. One of the twelve, Judas, was going to betray him. Judas is a devil, Jesus said. So they didn't have curiosity from that point onward to pay attention. Perhaps there might be hints of who the betrayer would be. It did not arouse their curiosity because on the surface they thought we're all the same. We all love each other. We all love Christ. We're all following him. We are all his true apostles. It didn't strike them to pay attention, to do what was right. Now, let's reiterate the fact that Judas ministered and walked among them, and he had the abilities and the true gospel, the same true gospel as the rest of the apostles. We, and to do so, we go to Matthew 10, Matthew 10, 1 to 4. Matthew 10, 1 to 4. Though they should have known better to pay attention, they didn't. And this is what they saw. This is what they saw and experienced. Matthew 10, 1 to 4. And having summoned his 12 disciples, he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now the names of the 12 apostles are these. The first Simon, who was called Peter and Andrew, his brother, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the Cananean, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. In verse 1, 12 disciples. Verse 2, the 12 apostles. And they are all named. Verse 4, Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. And what does Judas do? He has authority over unclean spirits, verse 1, to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. He is able to heal those who have demons and those who have sicknesses. He's able to heal them. Furthermore, Luke Luke chapter 9 and verse 6. Luke 9, 6. When he sent them out, he sent them out to preach. So what did they preach? Luke 9, 6. These 12, and Luke also mentions 12 in verse 1. He says, and he called the 12 together. 
and gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. The same thing as what Matthew says. But in verse 6, what do they preach? 9-6, And departing, they began going about among the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. What are they preaching? Preaching the gospel. Is Judas preaching the true gospel? Yes. That's why the disciples did not suspect him. If he were preaching a false gospel, the disciples would have suspected him. Judas preached the true gospel, but was not a true believer. Preached the true gospel without being a true believer. Furthermore, even after this incident in John 13, remember, a day or two later is when the Passover is celebrated. Correct? So between this time that Jesus says, one of, truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me, they didn't figure out who it was in the next day or two. They didn't figure it out. And Judas maintains his cloak. He maintains his deception. We see this in Mark 14. Mark chapter 14. 1417. 1417. This now is the last Passover that Jesus celebrated. Mark 14:17, which happened a day or two after John 13. Mark 14:17. And when it was evening, he came with the 12. The 12, which, which includes Judas. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be grieved and to say to him one by one, Surely not I. Who is also saying, Surely not I? Judas. 20. And he said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who dips with me in the bowl. For the Son of Man is to go, just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Why? Because he's going to hell. And he will be the betrayer of Christ. 22. And while they were eating, he took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to them, and said, Take, eat this, uh, take it, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is to be shed on behalf of many. Truly I say to you, I shall never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, Even though all may fall away, yet I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, that you yourself this very night before a cock crows, a rooster crows, twice shall deny me three times. But Peter kept saying insistently, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all were saying the same thing too. And who is a part of the they all? Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot also said, 
If I have to die with you, I will not deny you. Judas said those very words. Also, along with Peter. In the case of the eleven, it was a temporary sin when they fell away from him. When, when Peter himself also denied Christ three times, it was a temporary sin. He repented. And the rest of the eleven, or, or the twelve, they repented. So eleven out of the twelve repented. But Judas, he kept saying, no, 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 not me, not me. And he lived a pretentious life, a fake life in front of them, and they couldn't tell that he was the ultimate betrayer. They could not tell he was of the devil. They couldn't tell any of that. And he loved his sin, continued in his sin, eventually exposed his sin, died and went to hell. Judas Iscariot. Back to John 13. 13, 23. Now let's have a word of clarification and testimony from John the Apostle. 13, 23 to 25. 13, 23 to 25. There was reclining on Jesus' breast one of his disciples whom Jesus loved, Simon Peter, therefore gestured to him and said to him, Tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. He, leaning back thus on Jesus' breast, said to him, Lord, who is it? It seems that there was a custom of who sat where whenever they partook of a meal. And that on one side of Christ was John the Apostle, here called the disciple whom Jesus loved. And in verse 25, leaning back thus on Jesus' breast, the one who leaned back on Jesus' breast next to Jesus, John the Apostle. We'll see why we have to say it's John the Apostle. It has to be one of the twelve who's sitting right there next to Christ, correct? But Peter, Simon Peter, who's on the other side of John. So we have this order. Jesus, and then to one side of Jesus is John, and then to the other side of John is Simon Peter. Simon Peter is curious, and he asks John, John, ask or find out who is it that Jesus means that will betray him. Because that is a horrific thought. Horrific enough in Simon Peter's mind that he wants to know. He wants to know and figure this out before it actually happens. So Simon Peter asks John, ask Christ who it is. So John asked Christ, and Christ answered who it is. He answers in verse 26. Jesus therefore answered, That is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Why did he dip this way? Because Judas was on the other side of Christ. John on one side, Judas on the other side of Christ, so that the morsel was dipped and Jesus passed it on to Judas to eat. That was the signal. That was the hint that Jesus gave. Is that a clear hint? Is that a clear signal? Yes. John heard it. John could tell Simon, Peter, and they all could discuss it. They all could be on guard. Perhaps they were, perhaps they weren't. We don't know from this point on whether they knew that it would certainly be Judas. And whether they confronted him or not, we don't know. But we do know that the signal was given. The hint was given. The one that Jesus fed the morsel. 
He gave it to Judas. How do we now know? Let's confirm this because it's important in terms of eyewitness testimony. Who wrote the book of John and how do we know who wrote it? It has to be one of the twelve. It could not be Judas Iscariot, correct? It's the beloved disciple, the one that is next to Christ at the meal, right? Okay, we find that statement here. The, the disciple whom Jesus loved, popularly we say the beloved disciple. Jesus especially had a love for one of the disciples. He had a love for three of them, that is Peter, James, and John. The two sons of Zebedee, Peter was the uh, son of another, Peter, son of John, but Zebedee had two sons, James and John, and they were among the beloved. Peter, James, and John were among the three, I should say, that Jesus took to special places. For example, to the Mount of Transfiguration, he didn't take all 12 there. He took Peter, James, and John to the top when Jesus was transfigured. There were certain incidents like that where the three received special attention. And then we have the rest of the disciples, the rest of the 11, and then we have the 12th, Judas. You see the different levels or the different kinds of spheres of friendship and love among the disciples. So who is this disciple whom Jesus loved? The beloved, the one that was presumably his best friend among all of them. John chapter 19. John chapter 19. When Christ is on the cross, this beloved disciple and Jesus' mother are right there near. Right there near. Near enough for Christ to say these words and for them to hear these words. It says here, uh, we pick it up in 1925. John 1925 at the cross. Therefore, the soldiers did these things, but there were standing by the cross, Jesus, uh, the, uh, the cross of Jesus, his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. John the Apostle was such a trusted and beloved disciple that when Jesus is about to die, Jesus makes sure that his own mother Mary is taken care of, presumably because she's a widow by this point, taken care of by John the beloved disciple. That John would receive her into his household and, and take care of her needs. It says Jesus' mother was there in verse 25, and the beloved disciple was there in verse 26. They both heard these words. Also, the empty tomb upon the resurrection, John 20. John 20 and verses 1 and 2. 21 and 2. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. And so she ran and came to Simon Peter 
and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Then both Peter and John run to the tomb to see the empty tomb. Um, And presumably also John was younger than Peter or faster than Peter and arrived there shortly before Peter did at the tomb. John chapter 21. This relationship between Peter and John is also highlighted in John 21. In John 21, 15 to 23, Jesus is telling Simon Peter that he needs to take care of the sheep. Take care of the sheep. And after he tells him that and Peter assures him of his love for Christ, Christ says this to Simon Peter, verse 18. 21, 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Christ predicts this happening to Simon Peter, verse 18. What is it that Jesus means? John, the beloved disciple, explains, verse 19. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. By what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back on his breast at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Who is the one who betrays you? Christ says to Simon Peter, you're going to suffer a miserable death. You're going to suffer a miserable death. And there, the beloved disciple is present and hears this conversation. We proceed, verse 21. Peter, therefore, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, and what about this man? Jesus said to him, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. This saying, therefore, went out among the brethren that that disciple would not die. Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but only if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? Well, throughout the early years, the early centuries after the apostles, they all testify that the beloved disciple was John the disciple, was John the apostle, John the son of Zebedee. And that's why this book is given the name John, the book of John. John, the beloved disciple, who was an eyewitness of the crucifixion, who heard these words, and he, among the disciples, was one of the rare disciples who was never persecuted to death. He died a natural death about A.D. 95, John. And here, Christ, he doesn't say explicitly that John's not going to be persecuted to death, but he does say explicitly that Peter would be persecuted to death. And in church history, outside the Bible, 
there's evidence that Peter was indeed rounded up, persecuted to death, that he was crucified also. They also say the Romans put him upside down and crucified him that way. Peter, Simon Peter, the apostle. He did die miserably, but not John, the beloved disciple. This is the evidence that we have of John being the one who wrote this book and who has an eyewitness testimony of all that we have here. It has to be one of the 11. And church history identifies him as John the Apostle, John the son of Zebedee. Not John the Baptist or any other John, John the son of Zebedee. Now, we come to, we come to verse 27 to highlight this fact. And after the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Jesus therefore said to him, what you do, do quickly. Satan entered into Judas. Satan possessed Judas. Luke 22.3, Luke says the same. Satan entered Judas. Satan came to possess Judas Iscariot. We must then ask, was Judas guilty of his sins or was Satan guilty of Judas' sins? The answer is both. Judas was guilty and Satan was guilty. Judas was guilty because already it said in 13.2, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. Satan put the thought in the heart of Judas, and Judas did not reject it. He didn't repent of it. Judas didn't repent of the thought. And then Judas welcomes the possession of Satan. He welcomes Satan to come into him. He's a grown man. He's conscientious. He's conscious. He has a will. Right? And in terms of the will, he didn't repent. He didn't turn away from sin, but permitted Satan to enter him. Satan entered Judas. Which raises the the issues of of the Christian life and even the the non-Christian's life. Yes, All people, when they are unbelievers, are in one way or another controlled by Satan and his demons. They are in one way or another controlled by Satan and their demons. Jesus said in John 8, 44, You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. The people who oppose Christ, he says, you are of your father, the devil. Their father is the devil, their father is not God. Correct? Ephesians chapter 2, 1 to 3. Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. 
And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. The prince of the power of the air, he's speaking of the spirit who is in the sons of disobedience. So the spirit of Satan is in all people who are disobedient to the gospel. Not that Satan is personally in every unbeliever, but the spirit of disobedience is in every unbeliever because everyone belongs to their father, the devil. Then once we go beyond that, some people in the world are actually possessed by Satan or possessed by demons, whether one or more demons. Some people are actually possessed with spirits. This happens. In our case, in John 13, by this point, Satan did so to Judas Iscariot. He did it to Judas Iscariot. And throughout Scripture, we have people who are also possessed by an evil spirit. One example we have is Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, there is a certain slave girl who is possessed by a demon. Acts chapter 16 and verse 16. 16, 16 to 18. And it happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a certain slave girl having a spirit of divination who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune telling, following after Paul and us, she kept crying out saying, these men are bondservants of the most high God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. And she continued doing this for many days, but Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. Another one is chapter 19, Acts chapter 19, 19, 13, chapter 19 and verse 13. We'll read 13 to 16, Acts 19, 13. But also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. And seven sons of one Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus, and I know about Paul, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued both of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and Wounded. Evil spirit, powerful, possessing the man, and the man overcomes them. They're not able to withstand the force. This kind of thing does happen in our world. And in Judah's case, the ultimate, the worst of them all, he is the one who betrays Christ. And when he did betray him, 
He went out immediately, it says in verse uh, 30. And so after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. He did his dark deed in the dark of night. That's when he went to consult with the rulers of the Jews to strike a deal with them to get 30 pieces of silver to get more money. He wanted it. He wanted to do it quickly. And so he did it quickly, committing a betrayal against Christ. Now, we've emphasized Jesus and Judas, Jesus and the apostles. But this applies to you and me. It applies to us. In the book, uh, or in the New Testament, there are many examples of this very thing. Remember the parable of the sower, seed, and soil in Matthew 13. In Matthew 13, 1 to 23, Christ says that there will be those soils that temporarily manifest something good. He says in Matthew 13, Verse 20. Verse 20. And the one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. Isn't joy a good thing? When we see the joy, we have to ask, is it temporary joy or is it permanent joy? If it's temporary joy, this kind of person will fall away when the troubles come, even persecution. In verse 22, And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. The tree is unfruitful, but the tree did grow for a while. The tree grew for a while, but there was no fruit on the tree. Because there's no fruit on the tree, this also is someone without salvation because of the troubles of the world. The troubles of the world prevent him. Now, in this case, these two were temporary. But let's notice... In the same chapter, Matthew 13, in verses 24 to 30, he explains the parable of the tares among the wheat. The weeds among the wheat in 24 to 30. But in 36 to 43, he interprets that parable. He explains that parable about the weeds and the wheat because this particular weed that grows up with wheat looks very much like the wheat. It's very hard to distinguish between that weed and the wheat because they're growing up together. So what should we do? Or what does he recommend here? Because it's so extremely difficult for us to know what is the proper fruit and what is the false fruit, the good fruit and the false fruit. We don't know. He says... He says, who will take care of it? He says, in chapter 36, chapter 36 and verse 
39. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. And the harvest, 39. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are angels. Therefore, just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Since it is extremely difficult for us to know the difference between the weed and the wheat, because they look very, very similar. Christ says he does not permit us to have that discernment, that ability to identify them, these extremely difficult cases. In this way, he won't let us do it. Otherwise, we might be uprooting the wheat and causing damage to the wheat. So he says, we just have to live this way until the angels at the end of the age are sent forth by Christ to identify. And then the angels will separate the wheat from the tares, the wheat from the weeds. The angels will have that unmistakable ability, that miraculous ability to make a distinction between people. That's when the angels will take care of it. Whenever we can't take care of it, the angels will ultimately do so upon the return of Christ. Acts chapter 20. Now let's come a little bit closer to home. Acts chapter 20. By closer to home, I mean in local churches. In local churches, this is what happens. We begin at verse 28. Acts chapter 20. 20, verse 28. 28 to 31. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. We are supposed to be on guard. The elders or the pastors are supposed to be on guard for the church. Because savage wolves will come in. Didn't Jesus Christ say that the savage wolves don't come dressed as wolves? Didn't he say in Matthew 7... 15 to 23, or 13 to 23, didn't he say that there, they, there would be ravenous wolves in sheep's clothing? Yes, savage wolves will come, but they won't come growling. They won't come pouncing. Not obviously they won't come that way. They're going to be coming dressed as sheep, but they are actually wolves. They will come inside local churches not sparing the flock. They really want to devour, consume, eat up the flock. Also, from among our own selves, verse 30, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. These perverse men will want to draw away disciples. 
take them away from the local church, wherever the true gospel is preached, from that kind of local church. And this is so serious and so common in verse 31. The apostle alerted these elders night and day for a period of three years with tears. That's how common it is. It's not an uncommon thing. It's so common that he had to tell them night and day with tears for three years. This is the way it is. So be on the alert. Why? Because we don't normally want to be on the alert. We would rather relax. We would rather be comfortable. We don't like being soldiers on, on a watchtower. We don't like to be that. Who wants to be a soldier all alone on a watchtower? Doesn't the soldier want to be at home? Doesn't the soldier want to be with his family? Doesn't the soldier want to eat good food? Freshly made food? Doesn't the soldier want things like that? Of course he does. Nobody wants to be a soldier, but we're all supposed to be a soldier. In the Christian spiritual sense, we're supposed to be. Be on guard and warn others, even if we don't like it. First are Romans. Romans 16, 17. Romans 16, 17. Romans 16, 17. We'll read 17 and 18. Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites, and by their smooth and flattering speech they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. He urges the church, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances, contrary to the apostolic teaching. And when you notice them, turn away from them. Why should we turn away from people like that? Such men are slaves, not of Christ our Lord. They're slaves of their own appetites. And what do they do? How do they hook and crook people? By their smooth and flattering speech. Smooth and flattering speech. They say wonderful things to you, about you, so that you don't suspect them. And thereby they suspect, uh, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. Did we not read in 2 Timothy 4 that the Apostle Paul had this till the very end of his life? Till the very end of his life? These are the people who want to believe in myths, who want to believe in fairy tales, who don't want to believe in the hard truths of the Bible. They don't want to believe in them So they find their false teachers. They go away and find their false teachers. They won't adhere to the true teaching of the Word. And included in the list of his defectors and enemies was Demas, 2 Timothy 4.10. For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. He loved this present world. Therefore, he deserted the Apostle Paul. It wasn't because Paul was doing evil. It wasn't because Paul was unrighteous, a wicked man. Paul was a kind and loving man. But 
Demas deserted Paul. Why? Because Demas loved the present world instead of the world to come. Demas loved the people of the world instead of the people of Christ. That's why Demas left. That's why Demas deserted the apostle. But for a while, Demas worked with the apostle Paul. He worked with the apostle Paul for a while. 1 John 2. 1 John 2, 19. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out in order that it might be shown that they all are not of us. When people walk away from the true gospel, they walk away from a local church that preaches the true gospel. They really were not a part of us. They were physically a part of us, but they were never spiritually a part of us. They were never a part of the family of God. And when they did walk out, they walk out in order that it might be shown that they all are not of us. Well, who is seeing What is being shown? The church, the rest of the church, the true church is seeing what is being shown and is being shown by God because they walk away from the truth. They don't want the faith. They don't want righteousness. They don't want holiness. They don't want that. So they walk away. And when they walk away, God displays to us who's on his side and who's on Satan's side. The 11 disciples were on Jesus' side. Judas was on the side of the devil. It's always this way throughout every generation. Let's make sure that when we hear the true gospel, we believe in the true gospel. Let's not play with religion, play with God, but take God seriously and be one of the faithful. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.